Well, good afternoon, everybody. Take two, Ryan. Uh, I am Peter Russo. I am the Director of Congressional Affairs at the Cato Institute. And it's my pleasure to welcome everyone to our briefing today entitled Lessons <coughs> from Baltimore. Uh, just over three weeks ago, charges were filed against six Baltimore police officers for their respective roles in the death of 25-year-old Freddie Gray. This announcement largely, though not entirely, stamped out a bacchanalia of violence in the west and northwest neighborhoods of Baltimore. Soon the fires were put out, the curfews were ended, and with the withdrawal of the National Guard, so too went the Army of Press, who moved on to cover more enticing stories. Left behind, however, were over 100 injured police officers, some 500 people jailed, innumerable burnt vehicles, more than 350 damaged businesses, but also many questions. Most obvious, who is to blame? There's plenty to go around, not least of which are the rioters themselves who chose to answer injustice with more injustice. Understandable, but not justified and worse, likely counterproductive. What about the police? The last few years have seen a wave of well-publicized instances of excessive force, deadly force even, unlawful searches, seizures, arrests, and discriminatory policing. State and local governance have clearly contributed, and it's no longer novel to see the thin blue line square off against violent demonstrators. But for those of us who watch national policy unfold from Washington, two broad questions arise. How has the federal government contributed to these problems? And second, what role does it have in resolving them? At first, one might assume, well, none. After all, the police function is a state and local matter, right? Well, not so fast. Starting in 1964, the federal government launched two domestic wars, the War on Poverty, an enterprise spearheaded by President Lyndon Johnson, and then in 1971, Nixon's War on Drugs. More recently, a third war, then called the War on Terror and sparked by international events, ushered in the creation of the Department of Homeland Security and an accompanying era of fear. No longer were we just worried about armed drug cartels, but now international terrorists, terrorists with a penchant for indiscriminate and spectacular violence. Collectively, the results of these well-meaning but often misguided efforts have contributed pernicious effects to American life. Tremendous amounts of resources are expended to all levels of government to solve the problems of poverty, drugs, and terrorism. The costs of these efforts are not just pecuniary, and on the margins we have witnessed a significant degradation of privacy and property rights as well. So what should the federal government do about it? Does Congress need to spend more money on jobs programs? Should the Department of Justice sue the city of Baltimore for a pattern and practice of civil rights violations? I'm aware that the President and Congress have made steps in this direction already, but what about police equipment? Defense-oriented officer safety items seems to be a no-brainer. But does it make sense for local police departments to deploy weapons of war, tracked armored vehicles, weaponized aircraft, bayonets, grenade launchers, and large caliber firearms? What considerations do things like body cameras merit? Can we achieve Andy Griffith results by increasingly employing an arsenal of Batman, or soon a Robocop? So let's dig in. To my right, Tim Lynch is director at Cato's Project on Criminal Justice which has become a leading voice in support of the Bill of Rights and Civil Liberties. His research interests include the war on terrorism, overcriminalization, the drug war, the militarization of police tactics, and gun control. He joined Cato in 1991 and has been published widely in a variety of national periodicals and is a frequent guest on numerous networks and public interest programs. Lynch earned both a BS and a JD from Marquette University, and he is a member of the Wisconsin District of Columbia and Supreme Court Bars. Matthew Feeney is a policy analyst at the Cato Institute. Before coming to Cato, Matthew worked at Reason Magazine as assistant editor of Reason.com. He has also worked at the American Conservative, the Liberal Democrats, and the Institute of Economic Affairs. 
Matthew is a dual British American citizen and received both his BA and MA in philosophy from the University of Reading in England. Finally, Mike Tanner is a senior fellow at Cato and heads research into a variety of domestic policies with a particular emphasis on poverty and social welfare policy, healthcare reform, and social security. A prolific author, Tanner's newest book, Going for Broke, uh, Deficits, Debt, and the Entitlement Crisis will be released in just a few weeks in June. Tanner's writings have also appeared in nearly every major American newspaper. He's a frequent guest lecturer, and he appears regularly on network and cable and news programs. Uh, each of our speakers will have about 10 to 12 minutes, and after which we will open it up to a session of Q&A. So let's please welcome Tim Lynch. Or please welcome Tim Lynch. Try it that way. Thanks, Peter. Uh, good afternoon, everybody. It's great to see such an excellent turnout on the eve of a holiday weekend. I'm glad you could be with us. Um, I do have a lot of ground to cover, uh, so let me jump right in. Uh, as Peter mentioned, yesterday uh, a grand jury in Baltimore uh, approved criminal charges against uh, six police officers in that city, uh, the officers who were involved in the arrest of Freddie Gray. It looks like their criminal trial of those officers will not get underway until uh, this coming fall. Um, Freddie Gray lost his life in a horrifying set of circumstances. Uh, the authorities tell us that Freddie was handcuffed and he was put into the back of a police van, but the police officers did not uh, put him in a seatbelt. Uh, so with his hands handcuffed behind his back, uh, he was not able to brace himself as the police van moved along uh, around the city. And as he pleaded for medical help, again, the authorities tell us that the officers who were responsible for him uh, ignored his pleas. Uh, a medical examiner later reported that Freddie's spine was snapped. Uh, he fell into a coma uh, uh, for a week, and then he died as a result of those injuries. The protests that we saw in Ferguson last summer and the protests in Baltimore uh, that started after Freddie's case came to light has started a long overdue discussion of poverty and policing, especially in our cities. My remarks are going to focus on police tactics and police misconduct and the criminal justice system more generally. At the Cato Institute, we started an initiative three years ago that we call the National Police Misconduct Reporting Project. And you can find that on the web at policemisconduct.net. Each day, we gather together misconduct incidents from around the country and one of our purposes is to draw more attention to the problem of police misconduct and also to develop policies that can reduce the number of incidents and bring accountability to those who abuse their power. Now, sometimes people ask me, well, isn't everyone by definition already against police misconduct? And my response is that, well, on one level, yes. Uh, no one defends police brutality or illegal searches. But people do disagree on, they do not always agree on what constitutes police misconduct. People do not always agree on the scope of the problem. And people do not always agree on what to do about it. After studying the problem of police misconduct for several years, it is apparent that the problem is worse than many people realize. We're not just talking about 
you know, the proverbial <coughs> few bad apples. The Department of Justice is now investigating the Baltimore Police Department for what it calls a pattern and practice of constitutional violations. These federal investigations have been conducted before. Uh, we've seen Department of Justice investigators go into departments in New Orleans, Philadelphia, Seattle, Miami, Oakland, uh, and many other cities. But it's begun to get more prominence since they moved into the Ferguson Police Department last year and issued their scathing report uh, about that department. And what usually happens is there's a familiar pattern that is found over and over again in these large uh, big city uh, police departments and some of the mid-sized departments that they've gone into. What they find is that prosecutions for misconduct are rare, disciplinary procedures are often secret and not very serious. They tend to be very tilted uh, towards the officer and against the complaining citizen. Civilian review boards are understaffed and have very little impact on the police department and their policies. They do find lawsuits and settlements uh, for, you know, lawsuits for police brutality that are brought against the city. But what happens in these cases is usually the taxpayers end, end up paying for the jury verdicts and, and awards. And the culpable officers who juries have found that <coughs> overstepped the line and broke the law, these officers are not held accountable and disciplined when these jury verdicts come in. Sometimes they're not just not disciplined, sometimes they're even promoted. Not because of what they did, but because there's just no feedback loop between what a jury finds in a lawsuit and the other work that that officer is involved in. Now I'm going to hazard a guess uh, and say that in a few months the Department of Justice is going to issue a report on the Baltimore Department and they are going to find a pattern and practice of problems there. Because we really already know those problems exist. The Baltimore Sun did an extensive expose on the department and all of the uh, police misconduct lawsuits that have been brought against that city over the years. So I expect in whatever, seven months, eight months, a year, the Department of Justice is going to issue another scathing report finding many of these common problems with um, the Baltimore Department. And they will issue a series of recommendations. And then the mayor of Baltimore and uh, the police chief there will pledge that they will move on these recommendations to get the department on a better track. We've seen this before. And a few days ago, I should also mention that the White House Task Force on Policing, uh, they uh, issued a report just a few days ago that contained dozens and dozens of recommendations to improve policing and race relations. But I'm afraid the reforms that we see, uh, reforms calling for more police training, more data collection, uh, more transparency in, in the police departments. Uh, these, these proposals are good, but they really talk around uh, a basic problem. So even if they are implemented in good faith by police officials in the cities, we're not going to see uh, anything more than improvements at the margins. If we want to get dramatic improvement from our current situation, we have to reconsider our, our policies relating to drugs, uh, as Peter mentioned at the outset. The drug war has been going on now for some 40 years, and uh, it has been a failure. Uh, the war policy has not stopped drugs from coming into the country. 
The drug war has not stopped people from using drugs, and uh, the war policy has not kept drugs away from our schools. Each year, the government spends billions of dollars on the war effort, but it cannot even keep drugs out of our penitentiaries. And it's bad enough that we're pouring a lot of money into a policy that is not working, but it's actually worse than that. The policy is counterproductive. It is creating more problems than it is solving. And one of these problems concerns the relationship between young minority men and the police. During the days of alcohol prohibition, there was a thriving underground market to supply liquor to those who wanted it. Today, we have a thriving underground market to supply narcotics to the people who want to use it. And it's no secret that young minority men in our cities, in the poor neighborhoods, are tempted to make some cash selling drugs. They are disproportionately a part of the trade that sell drugs out into the open. And this underground market created by our drug policies is standing out there, and it's telling these young men that, yeah, even if you drop out of school, there's still going to be an opportunity to go make some cash. Unfortunately, it's one of the only ways in which many of these people can make cash because they are in poor neighborhoods. They do not have the skills uh, from the schools that are failing them. And this is standing out there as an opportunity to make a quick buck. <clears throat> now, you combine that situation with what the, we ask the police to do. The police are tasked with waging the war policy. They are told to go out and make drug busts. And the police are often evaluated by the number of arrests that they make and the, and, uh, the, the drugs that they seize. So we have this powerful dynamic at work where the police are constantly clashing with young minority men in our cities. So many of the stops and searches in the streets of our cities, are, they're not about burglary investigations. They're not about rape investigations. They're about trying to make drug busts. There is a marijuana arrest in the United States every minute, 24-7, all year long. And that's just marijuana. And behind every arrest, there are dozens and dozens of searches stops and raids that go on. So I have to lay that kind of background before we can you know, discuss some of the proposals that have been put forward. One of the president's proposals is called My Brother's Keeper, and it's designed to men help mentor young minority men. We also have proposals to collect more information from the police departments about, about their stops, about uh, uh, you know, the persons are stopped, how long the stop took place, whether any drugs were seized, collect more information from the police. We also have the popular proposal to uh, spend more money on body cameras, which Matt Feeney is going to be talking about in, in a few minutes. Uh, these ideas are, you know, there's some merit to them, but they're only going to bring us some small, marginal improvement from where we are right now. If we want to take some intermediate steps to try to get some better results, the police departments can scale back on the stop and frisk tactics that the police have been using in minority neighborhoods. Uh, these are tactics where the police uh, stop people, pedestrians out on the street, 
uh, when they suspect that there is some criminal activity afoot, and they will stop and often frisk people uh, down to see if they have any drugs or weapons on, on their persons. In New York City, now these are tactics that would never be tolerated in the suburbs. Uh, you know, a lot of my friends complain about police searches or TSA searches at airports. Um, now, if you can imagine, at least when you're going to an airport, you can kind of prepare yourself. You know, you're going to be going through that. But if you can imagine, you know, this stuff happening in your everyday life, like when you want to go to work, go see a friend, go to a movie, and you're stopped by the police, detained and frisked, you can begin to get an idea of what life is like for young minority men in the cities. In New York City, uh, between 2004 and 2012, there have been 4.5 million stops. And what's interesting, that this is from a federal case when this was challenged in federal court, and the judge found that of these 4.4 million stops, in nearly 90% of the cases, there was no uh, summons given or no arrest. Now remember, in order to make a stop legal, uh, the police say that they had a pretty good reason for stopping somebody because they thought criminal activity was afoot. And yet what the judge found and what was undisputed by the, the litigants was that in nearly 90% of the cases, there was no summons and there was no arrest. So they stopped somebody, detained them, may have frisked that person, and nothing happened. Um, it kind of is a window into this realm where the police, their incentive is to stop people, to try to find drugs. Uh, they're not purposely uh, trying to harass people, but they're, they're evaluated by uh, you know, the number of arrests that they make. And yet they're, to they're told in court that they had a good reason for stopping somebody, and yet 90% of the cases, nearly 90%, it turns out that they were wrong. Whatever their hunch was that somebody was involved in criminal activity turned out not to be the case. Otherwise, there would have been a summons or, or an arrest. This is happening right here in the Washington, D.C. as well. Um, we have conservative judges here on the Court of Appeals. Uh, judge Janice Rogers Brown, for example, she's written eloquently about this, about how uh, young minority men are treated differently, that if the police had stopped uh, several people in business attire, uh, hanging out outside of a Starbucks. Uh, we don't seem to see that type of thing happen. And yet, when it comes to the poorer people who live in a different part of town, the police rush up, detain these people, and subject them to frisks. And she says this, this creates uh, a lot of problems, treats people differently, <coughs> and pits the residents of minority neighborhoods against the police department in a pitched battle why we have this rising resentment in so many of our cities. Uh, these are the people coming out to protest uh, when uh, things uh, go so far as when somebody is actually killed, um, like a Freddie Gray. Mayor B uh, uh, de Blasio in New York City has begun to scale back on stop and frisk tactics in that city. So that is one thing uh, uh, leaders in other cities can do. The stop and frisk tactics um, create a lot of resentment in our cities, and, and they're really uh, misguided. Another thing that we can do is stop the flow of weaponry from the Pentagon to local police departments. President Obama spoke a, a little bit about this on Monday. When the police roll into these neighborhoods in armored vehicles, dressed in camouflage, wearing helmets with military-type weaponry, uh, there are these violent raids on people's homes and apartments. We have a 
a map on the Cato Institute website, we call it the RAID map, where we kind of track uh, a lot of these violent paramilitary raids on, on people's homes, apartments, and in public housing. Um, you know, when these units roll into a neighborhood, you know, constitutional rights are too often trampled, people get hurt, and uh, more generally, even if you're not the subject of the search, if it's your next door neighbor, people begin to view the police not as you know a force that's helping them solve problems, but as an occupying force uh, coming in. Instead of you know we used to refer to police officers as peace officers, they were there to respond to a disturbance and restore the peace. But these days, they are too often rolling into neighborhoods in the middle of the night or earlier in the morning, conducting a violent raid, and they're actually uh, creating the disturbance. So that is another problem uh, that we need to uh, reverse. Another thing that we can take a look at is re-examine the red tape that uh, too many police unions have put in place uh, with respect to uh, employment practices for police officers. There's too much red tape in place that makes it almost impossible sometimes to get rid of a bad police officer. Some police chiefs will tell you that they know who the bad apples are right now, but it's almost impossible to get them off of the force because of the red tape that's involved. Uh, our friends on the right see this problem in the education context where it's hard to get rid of bad teachers <coughs> because of uh, union contracts, uh, but the same problem uh, exists with respect to police departments. But again, if we want intermediate steps, we're gonna get intermediate results. Since I'm almost out of time, let me stress once again, if we wanna see dramatic improvements, we have to bring the drug war to an end the same way we, we brought the mistaken policy of alcohol prohibition to an end. And this is not to say that all our problems are gonna go away. Uh, the problems of police misconduct and corruption uh, are really always gonna be with us, but we can see significant improvements in these areas if we were to uh, bring the drug war to an end. And at Cato, we have also studied the policies of other countries, such as Portugal, which decriminalized all drugs in 2001. And one of the primary objections we used to hear was that if we were to end the drug war, we'd see a spike in drug use and we'd have a public health crisis and it would be too late to turn back. It turns out, if you study what has happened in Portugal, that did not happen. Uh, drug use is, uh, uh, did, there was no spike. Uh, and that the policy has been in that place for in that country for many years, and there's no effort to say, "Oh my gosh, we made a mistake. We need to reverse that." In fact, other countries are beginning to look at Portugal and study what they're doing there and are moving in that direction. We should let the police focus on violent crime and let health officials focus on the problems associated with drug abuse. Thank you for your attention. Okay, well, uh, thank you, Tim, and thank you, Peter, and thank you all for coming. Uh, I want to follow up uh, on what Tim said by addressing the issue of body cameras, which are tools that are often cited as possible remedies for police misconduct. Uh, in the wake of tragic incidences like the death of Freddie Gray and Michael Brown, uh, I often hear that if we had more cameras on the streets or at least on uh, police officers that we'd be able to hold police officers more accountable. And what I want to do in the limited time I have is discuss the data that we do have on body cameras and what their effects are, the role that body camera footage can play in investigations into police misconduct, 
the role of the federal government, where I'm, I suppose, standing now, albeit in a basement, uh, and the issues that must be addressed if anyone is interested in formulating a body camera policy. So one of the most cited uh, studies on body cameras uh, was carried out in Rialto, California. Uh, it was a 12-month study that began in February 2012 to February 13. Uh, in the 54 frontline offices wore the cameras. There were about 1,000 shifts that were studied, and about half the officers did wear cameras, and the other half they did not. And interestingly, this was uh, the result. This is from the raw data. So you'll see that the last bar chart here, this is the experimental period. There was a dramatic drop in uh, use of force incidences as well as uh, complaints against police officers. Now, that might strike you as great evidence that body cameras uh, have a big role in improving police behavior. But there are a couple things I want to point out about this study. Uh, firstly, it is not necessarily the case. Uh, you have this classic correlation causation problem here, OK? Uh, so the, the, the study began just after a new police chief came in. The new police chief in Rialto implemented a number of reforms. So we don't know uh, to what extent the other reforms also contributed to this. Uh, also, it's worth pointing out that we don't know if the welcome results are because the cameras make citizens behave better or if they make uh, police officers behave better. We have this uh, interesting problem. We can't really isolate the effect. It, are these body cameras having a civilizing effect on citizens or police or a bit of both? And some, while working on this issue, I have come across a problem that some other people have found, which is there is very limited uh, actual uh, peer review study on body cameras. So uh, if anyone in the audience or watching is in a position to carry out such a study, I urge them to do so. Another study I'd like to highlight is from uh, Mesa, Arizona. Uh, this was another 12-month study with 50 cameras. Uh, and there was, it was 12 months, the first six-month period. Uh, activation was required. In the second six-month period, activation was up to the officer. Two things I want to point out about this study is that when officers were allowed to turn, them, turn the cameras on and off at their own discretion, uh, the camera use declined 42%. Now, that, that should tell us something. Um, while looking at the literature, it's important to keep in mind which of these studies include volunteers and which of these include people who are assigned to wear the cameras. Uh, in this, it was a mixture of both. But as you can see, uh, so blue team refers to uh, an IA. Uh, th these refer to software that police officers use to record complaints and use of force incidents. As you can see, again, there is a decline in uh, complaints as well as use of force. But we have the same problem as we have in the Rialto study. We are not sure if this is for other, uh, other variables that weren't being looked at or because of other reforms in the police department. The last study I want to discuss uh, was actually in Aberdeen, Scotland. Uh, this was a three-month pilot that started with 18 cameras. They eventually moved up to 39 cameras. In concentrated in Maastricht and Northfield, which are two neighborhoods in Aberdeen, uh, they were selected because of their uh, socially deprived status. Uh, so they looked at things like rates of crime, home ownership, health, and education. And you can look at the chart, and it looks like, well, compared to the same period the year before, so June to August 2010 is the trial period, compared to the same month the year before, there is a decline in crime, including uh, breach of peace, vandalism, minor assault, and, uh, and serious assault. But even the researchers in this study noted that it is difficult to show a causal relationship between the use of body cameras and changes in crime. 
In particular, it is challenging to attribute any changes in crime to one specific intervention. Given that there are other changes occurring simultaneously, both at societal level, such as increases uh, in unemployment and at a police force level, for example, in terms of restructuring of police services. So the evidence uh, seems to suggest that after body cameras are deployed in a given area, you have welcome results, whether that is a decline in use of force, uh, decline in complaints against the police, and you have a decline in crimes. Uh, the next slide shows that uh, the two areas that were studied enjoyed a greater decline in crime than the rest of Aberdeen uh, during the period. So what are we to make of this? Uh, what I want to argue is that even if police body cameras didn't have any effect on police behavior, they would still be using, they would still be worth using because of the evidence that they provide. Uh, the slide here is a uh, still from uh, body camera footage that was captured in March of uh, 2014. Uh, the, the man in white with his hands uh, in this position is uh, James Boyd, who is a homeless, paranoid schizophrenic who was uh, camping out in the Sandia Mountains. Uh, he was uh, shot and killed. He was also beanbagged, and a canine unit was sent on him. Now, the, what, I, what I think is uh, interesting about this case is that in January, two officers uh, were charged with murder. And at the time, the, Bernalillo, the Bernalillo, sorry, County uh, District Attorney said, in this case, we have evidence uh, to establish probable cause we didn't have in other cases. I have seen many, many body camera videos uh, that show uh, police misconduct. What's interesting is that very fact, that even if police officers are wearing <coughs> these uh, devices, they still do engage in this behavior on occasion. In this instance, uh, two of the officers are facing murder charges, but I've seen uh, there was a recent case of uh, a man holding a screwdriver who was shot and killed in Dallas. Uh, the officers are not facing charges in that case, last I checked. So what, what I think, go, going on what Tim was saying, there are, there are, you know, body cameras are not a panacea. We can't expect that the wide deployment of these uh, pieces of technology to uh, you know, solve all our problems. There are other policy reforms that we need to consider. So finally, I want to talk about federal agencies here. I'm a federalist. I think that policing should be handled at the local and state level. I don't think that uh, the federal government has a role in telling uh, local police departments how to conduct their business. However, a lot of federal agencies are armed, and a lot of federal agencies have authorities to arrest people. Uh, this, the DEA, the FBI, ATF, uh, Custom Border Patrol. So I think the federal government certainly does have a role in discussing body camera policy for these agencies. Uh, I know the Obama administration has proposed giving money out for uh, body cameras, as have uh, Senators Rand Paul and Brian Schatz have co-sponsored legislation. I don't think uh, that we should be attaching financial incentives for body camera use. I am more than happy for congressmen and senators and the president to take part in a conversation on body cameras, but we should be wary of attaching financial incentives. So. I want to finish up by talking about what a good pot, uh, body camera policy might look like. Uh, we need to get this right. A bad body camera policy could be very dangerous. Uh, looking throughout the country, there are examples of good policies and there are examples of bad policies. The knee-jerk libertarian reaction might be to assume that these body cameras should be on all the time and that the footage should be uh, available to the public all the time. But there are serious privacy concerns here. Uh, police regularly interact with people on the worst days 
of their life. Uh, we need to be careful when we think about the release of body camera footage that includes uh, children who have been sexually assaulted or victims of domestic abuse. Police also talk to informants, uh, people who have uh, spoken to police in confidence. They are also oftentimes the first at the scene on fatal auto accidents. They also sometimes, as we know from dash camera footage, interact with celebrities and uh, you know, people who have perhaps had a bit too much to drink on a Saturday night. We need to have a uh, privacy policy in place that clearly states <coughs> when the cameras are going to be on, when they're going to be off, what information is going to be redacted when the footage is released, and what the process is for that footage to be released in the first place. One of the more particularly controversial uh, things I want to talk about is policy related to when people can view the footage, uh, specifically officers. Uh, that I have seen policies proposals, I'm thinking specifically of the LAPD that proposed a body camera policy that would allow LAPD officers to view body camera footage before making an initial statement after a use of force or uh, violent incident. I think it's, we, we need to have a policy in place that puts accountability and transparency ahead of any opportunity police officers have to try and exonerate themselves by looking at body camera footage. I think body camera footage should certainly be used as evidence in uh, criminal cases, uh, but they shouldn't be afforded, uh, well, police officers shouldn't be afforded the chance to view the footage before making statements. Uh, I'm more than happy to take questions afterwards, but I'm going to hand over to my colleague, uh, Michael Tanner, at the moment. Thank you for your time. <coughs> Well, thank you all, and I'll try to be brief uh, so we can get right to the question and answer session. I also want to take this up to a, sort of a different level, because if uh, Freddie Gray's death in Baltimore was the spark that set off the riots in Baltimore and the troubles there, <clears throat> there was an awful lot of gunpowder already lying around, uh, not just in terms of the police misconduct, but in terms of the general conditions under which people in that area of town had to live. If you look at Sandtown, the area where the incident happened in Baltimore, more than half the people there are unemployed. This is an area of town that doesn't have a single grocery store. There's not a single restaurant in the area, not even a fast food joint. <clears throat> so you have high unemployment, you have very few opportunities for people, and it's not surprising that there's a certain hopelessness and despair and frustration that sets in so that when there's an incident like Freddie Gray, it lights the spark that everything goes off. The question then becomes, how do you tamp this down? How do you solve the problems that beset an area like that? How do you give people less or more hope, more opportunity, a chance to get out from under the conditions they're living in in a place like Sandtown? Well, right after the riots, people thought about it. <clears throat> Politicians in particular thought about it for about 10 seconds and then immediately came up with their answer, which is that we need to spend more money. Uh, that we, we heard over and over again, we need to invest in our inner cities. President Obama said that. Uh, Congressman Cummings, who represents the Baltimore area, said that. Steny Hoyer said that. He represents Maryland in that area. I mean, it, constantly we heard this refrain, well, what we really need to do is spend more money because Baltimore has been neglected for years. The inner cities have been neglected for years. Poverty has been neglected in this country for years. The reality is there's very little evidence of neglect. We have been pouring money into poverty and into Baltimore in particular for decades. You know, if you want to go back to 1965 when Lyndon Johnson declared war on poverty, we have spent $22 trillion 
in this country on anti-poverty programs. Uh, last year alone, the federal government spent $688 billion financing over 120 separate anti-poverty programs. State and local governments tossed in another $300 billion. So we're spending just about a trillion dollars last year on poverty. That doesn't strike me as neglect. And Baltimore, well, between 2003 and 2013, which is the last year we have complete data for, Baltimore received $6 billion in federal and state grants to fight poverty. And it received an additional $1.6 billion in stimulus money from the big stimulus uh, program that we had. And they've spent about $1.4 billion of that $1.6 billion so far. And yet we still see 25% of Baltimoreans living in poverty. We still see the problems that beset Sandtown. We're not getting a great deal of bang for our buck. <clears throat> and it might be because we're spending, kind of throwing money at the problem of poverty rather than dealing with the things we know actually can lift people out of poverty. Number one of those is a job. You know, less than 3% of people who work full-time live below the poverty level. Yet, as we've seen, there's very few jobs available in inner-city Baltimore and in places like Sandtown. Well, one reason for that might be the fact that Maryland, and Baltimore in particular, have, among the, have some of the worst tax and regulatory climates for business in the nation. Maryland has the 10th worst business tax climate in the nation and the fifth worst personal income tax climate. When it comes to small business, there's the, they're the seventh highest marginal tax rate on small business in the nation. Now, if a business is going to try to locate in an area like inner city Baltimore, that's a high risk venture for that business. They're only going to do that if they see a substantial opportunity for return. And the more barriers, tax and regulatory barriers you put before them, before they can invest in those areas, the less likely they're going to be to make those investments. You're not going to lure businesses to high poverty, high crime areas while you're still, while you're sort of piling on additional regulations and additional taxes, which is the policy that Maryland has undertaken. Second is education. We know that if you drop out of school, chances are you're going to be poor. If you go on and graduate college, you're not. 25% of Baltimore students fail to graduate. The SAT scores in Baltimore are 100 points below the national average. And less than half of Baltimore students pass the standard assessment tests for high school. And yet Baltimore spends a great deal of money on education, over $16,500 per student in the Baltimore school system. Depending on how you want to measure it, Baltimore is between second and fourth highest spending big city in America when it comes to education. So we're spending money not getting good results. Why? Because the Baltimore school system acts more like its job is to protect teachers than to serve parents and students. Maryland has one of the worst, one of the strictest regulations of charter schools in the nation. As a result, there's only some 70 or so charter schools in the whole state of Baltimore. More students are educated 
in charter schools in Washington, D.C. than in the state of Maryland. Parents don't even have public school choice in, in Maryland. If, if you're assigned to a district, you're essentially stuck in that district, no matter how bad the school is. If you're living in Sandtown and you're sent to a school down the street that's crime-ridden, doesn't have textbooks, does it, the teachers don't teach, you're stuck there. You don't have the opportunity to send your kids somewhere else, let alone things like vouchers or tuition tax credits or something that really would give parents control over the students. So we fail on jobs, we fail on education, and finally, we fail on family formation. We know that one of the keys to being not poor, or one of the poor keys to getting out of poverty, is waiting until you're married to have a kid. Now, this is not a moral judgment. It's an economic one. You're five times more likely to live in poverty if you give birth without a father or without a husband than if you wait until you get married uh, before you have children. And yet, we have two separate policies in place that increase out-of-wedlock birth in Maryland. Number one is extremely high level of welfare benefits, often conditioned on not having a father's income in the family. And second, as we've already heard, a war on drugs that criminalizes young men, gives them a criminal record that makes it very difficult for them to get employment in the future, and also, in the words of William Julius Wilson from Harvard, makes them not marriageable. Uh, if you're a single woman in the inner city and you're looking for a husband, uh, chances are much more difficult to find one because they're, they can't get a job, they, they're not set for marriage, they're not set for families because they have this criminal record that they're tied to. And then on the other side of it, we say, okay, well, if you have a child, we'll still give you all these welfare benefits uh, on that side of it. So it's not surprising that two-thirds of the births in Baltimore are to unmarried women, and more than half the households in Baltimore are headed by single women, which is a recipe for poverty. The simple fact is that what we've done is tried to soothe our own consciences by throwing poor people money. We measure inputs. How much do we spend? How many programs do we have? Not outputs. How many people have we gotten out of poverty? We're giving people money to make poverty a little less uncomfortable, but we're not taking steps that would actually get people out of poverty. And that would include reducing tax and regulatory businesses for businesses that want to invest in these high-risk areas, improving our school system by giving parents control over schools and holding teachers accountable, and increasing the incentives for family formation by reducing welfare and ending the war on drugs and the overcriminalization of young black men. Thank you all very much. Appreciate it. Look forward to the questions. So we have a limited amount of time, so I'm going to ask that everybody um, keep their question in the form of a question so that we don't take up too much. Um, we'll start with uh, you there. Yeah. <coughs> cam on me, I would have noticed that it was more of an economic issue than a racial issue. The mainstream media portrayed it more as a racial, that it was the Chinese fighting the Koreans. It was everybody fighting everybody. It was just madness. But it had nothing 
as much to do with race as it was portrayed. Also, with Ferguson, I think that the body cam would have helped. But also, it's poverty, and what you said is very valid. So my question is, is if you don't like the body cam, but a body cam cannot just protect the police officer, it can protect the general public so we know what's really going on. Because I was told the Ferguson indictment was, non-indictment was delayed so it could happen during prime time. And then it happened at night, which was a lot more dangerous for society that they just released it five hours earlier. So any comments that you have about both of those? Yeah, so I think that uh, body cameras benefit actually both uh, police officers and citizens because police officers are sometimes subject to bogus complaints, uh, for example, and you do hear sometimes police officers saying that they like body cameras because it makes cuts down on a certain degree of uh, time they spend dealing with that. However, they certainly, um, I think there's a huge benefit to citizens. Uh, the interesting thing that happened uh, after Ferguson was because there was a lack of video footage, two different narratives were allowed to emerge. One was, you know, this was a, uh, a young, uh, angry, uh, a young, angry man who needlessly attacked a police officer and, you know, was justifiably slain. And the other narrative was uh, that, you know, this, well, the opposite of that, let's put it that way. Um, but what, one, of, one of these, or neither of those, is true, and a body camera would have helped. Uh, so I, I, I think in the future, uh, an increasing number of Americans are going to come to demand that their officers... Uh, have body cameras. Uh, it's going to become the norm. Uh, but like I said, we need good policies in place to make sure that that's a, that it's not a disaster when that does happen. One, one quick comment on that. I mean, closely related to body cameras is the proliferation now of cell phones and capturing more police conduct with uh, a cell phone. Because a generation ago, a generation ago, when somebody complained of police brutality, uh, the average person didn't know what to make of it, right? Somebody says that the police beat me up. The police respond and say, well, we used the force that was necessary to bring somebody uh, you know, under control so that we could arrest them. And your average person, they didn't know what to make of it. I wasn't there. Uh, I don't know what to believe. I don't want to believe the police department is telling a lie. But nowadays, more and more arrests and incidents are on cell phone uh, coverage, and now the average person can reach their own conclusions about whether the police were using necessary force or whether they had stepped over the line and, and engaged in you know just police brutality and a police beating. And so this is uh, bringing like really a revolution now uh, to policing. It's having a big impact because now people can reach their own conclusions about it, and then you know protest about it until there really is accountability. Can I quickly add to that? Sure. Um, I, I really think uh, part, in, in doing research, I watch quite a lot of depressing YouTube videos, uh, whether it's uh, you know, the body cam footage, but also people filming the police. And what really is brought to home uh, to me is that not enough people understand their rights when it comes to filming the police. Uh, if in, it is a First Amendment protected and if you are if you're legally where you're supposed to be, you can film the police. Uh, there are apps like uh, I mean I can show any of you afterwards, but uh, UStream uh, is you know vi direct video upload, so you know it's not stored on the phone; it goes straight onto a website. The ACLU have um, come up with software uh, apps uh, for recording the police. Uh, film the police; it's worth doing. <laughs> uh, yes, Jim. Uh, my name's Janice Walt Grenadier, and I was jailed for 22 days for filming the police. 
talk so that Mark Warner could be reelected in the state of Virginia. We have an unusual absence of checks and balances that has become the perfect storm. We are saying right now this is an African-American problem, this is an American problem. And what I would like to ask you is who can we go to and who do you think we should be able to go to for justice and fairness in the courts? We send our young men and women off to war to fight for rights we no longer have in this country. Well, uh, it's, a, it's a complicated question. Um, obviously, when, if you feel like your rights have been trampled, the first step for anybody is to try to find a good lawyer because they're going to help you, you know, recommend to you the things that you can do and the things that you shouldn't do and uh, get in touch with elected officials and they'll know to bring the uh, proper complaints against the police departments and uh, to bring viable lawsuits. But I, I agree with you. I know what you're saying. There are lots of obstacles in place to get redress of grievances and to get compensation. So there's a lot of reforms that need to be done in order to get the system to where it ought to be. The Institute for Justice, by the way, does terrific work in this area, if you're not familiar with their efforts. So, uh, yeah. Well, the primary benefit is it, it brings uh, peace and harmony back to these neighborhoods. Right now, there is a thriving underground market, and it's controlled by criminal gangster organizations that fight one another to get control of the trade. So uh, there's violence uh, among these gangs, and innocent people get caught in the crossfire. Uh, the gangs uh, have no you know, reservations about selling drugs to minors. So uh, by ending the drug war and putting drugs into places like liquor stores, I mean, it's not, it's not great. Uh, there are some problems that are going to be there, but it's a whole lot better than what we have right now, where you have this thriving underground market and the, the, the gang violence. The, as I said, it, it's, a, it's a tempting invitation for young people who are dropping out of schools to go and make some cash. What happens is they make some cash right for a few months, and then they either get busted, get a criminal record, makes it hard for them to reenter the mainstream economy and get work experience, or they go to prison, or they, they get uh, killed by a rival gang. So these are the problems that we can get away from if we were to end the, the war on drugs. Time for probably one more. Yes, you in the back. Well, it certainly wouldn't be overnight. Uh, I mean, the fact is that these are not, I say, these are high-risk areas for a business to invest in. I mean, the people who are working in these areas or living in these areas tend to be low-skilled, low attachment to the workforce, criminal records, all the other problems that we've been talking about. Uh, plus, you have their high crime areas and, and, and areas that are simply not areas where people want to rush into to create a business. So even with incentives, it's going to be a slow process to get, get 
uh, folks to invest in that. That said, you can see communities turn around fairly quickly. You only need one or two anchor businesses to bring into an area that sometimes you can then see the whole area begin to turn around. You can look not, uh, not too far down here uh, in the Chinatown area of Washington, D.C., where after the MCI Center went in, a couple of businesses went into that area and began to turn around, or downtown Silver Spring in Maryland where the Discovery Store went in and then they created the pedestrian mall down there and businesses went in. So once you can get one or two to sort of anchor the investment, others, others will follow. So I, I think it would be a, it's going to be a multi-year process, and you're going to have to deal with the other things too, not just the businesses. You're going to have to educate the workforce, which means changing the schools. You're going to have to have, have deal with all these other problems as well, deal with the drug wars so that you don't have the high crime areas and so on. It's not a single magic bullet, but it's certainly part of the process. You can't say, well, there's no jobs. By the way, this one store's moving in there. Let's tax the heck out of them. So you can't do that. All right. Well, there's time for one more, I guess. Let us decriminalize and back off of this stuff. And can you make any statement about uh, either party or caucuses, like the Congressional Black Caucus or whatever, any any group which has stature within Congress that would at least say, uh, maybe we can pass a law saying we will, uh, any state that wants to take the authority will let them and let, let the states experiment. The federal government will stand back and let them give a try or something like that. Well, it's important to recognize that the big progress that we've seen in recent years with respect to reversing drug policy has come at the state level, and it's also come by referendum, not by elected officials passing or repealing drug laws through a state legislature. Uh, that's how it happened in Colorado, Washington State, and we've seen it happen in, in a few other states as well, and California will be the big one in 2016. So it's happening by referendum. Now that said, there are some members of Congress who are uh, have put forth some bills. Dana Rohrabacher is one who is trying to say, restrain the federal law enforcement apparatus by saying, let's respect the states that are choosing to liberalize on drugs, Let's restrain the DEA and the other federal law enforcement agencies from going into those states and trying to bust people who are opening up otherwise legitimate stores and, and things like that. So we are seeing the beginnings of some progress there. But what I expect will happen over the next 10 years is we'll have more and more states, especially on marijuana, uh, begin to uh, turn away from the war policy. And uh, I think marijuana will be largely legal in the United States, but it's taking, it's taking too long. It'll, it'll happen, but I think it'll happen probably in eight, nine, ten years. As far as the economic incentives and the larger welfare policy goes, I think uh, the major candidates at least, uh, Marco Rubio has a very detailed proposal in which he would essentially turn uh, federal fund welfare spending back to the states uh, with relatively few strings to allow more experimentation and what the states want to do with that. Uh, Rand Paul has a, uh, a proposal to essentially slash taxes uh, in, in inner city high uh, poverty areas uh, that would do that. He also has a proposal with, uh, I believe, with Cory Booker to uh, and, and Dick Durbin uh, to uh, eliminate or to roll back criminal records for people. So people who had been arrested for minor offenses, those uh, felony records would go off their, 
off their record. They wouldn't have to put that down when they apply for work and so on, sort of the clean records. I think that would go a long way as well. In the last Congress, Paul sponsored also a um, enterprise zone bill that is out there. So we're seeing these things come up sort of ad hoc, but there doesn't seem to be a collective um, group to really do anything at the federal level. Um, officially, you guys are all dismissed, but I will entertain questions since we started a little bit late. So if you want to stay, you're welcome to. Uh, Norm? I want to apply. I think Senator Paul has also done a lot of work on um, police militarization, asset forfeiture, civil liberties. Um, and um, he found time in the course of his very short remarks on Patriot Act extension the other day. I think it only went like 10 hours. Um, to talk about a lot of these issues. No, that's exactly right. Senator McCaskill has a bill, I think, that aims to curb 1033, uh, the problems there. And I believe on the House side is Congressman Clay, who also has a companion bill to that effort. So I, they, I believe they mirror roughly what President Obama announced earlier. Uh, yes. Right. Well, just one, I just want to say how I'm glad that you had um, a speaker on here, Michael, to talk about the economic issues and some of the other issues because I think there's a thing. I've noticed there tends to be a dichotomy in this debate where some of us who are concerned with police brutality, police militarization, particularly in the inner cities, there's always a pushback from some of the more concerned about, well, the real problem is, and it's sort of like, well, actually, you can say that we need to address both problems and maybe need to address them all in tandem as opposed to trying to set up this either-or dichotomy. Well, so somewhat related, but um, I've always found, I mean, in any debate, I, I find it odd that uh, Republicans or self-described fiscal conservatives could support the war on drugs considering how expensive it is and how expensive it is to incarcerate so many people. This country has the, larger, the highest incarceration rate of any developed country. And it's and oftentimes, you know, keeping people incarcerated is more expensive than putting people through four-year college on a per annum basis. Um, how this is, uh, you know, fiscal sanity it amuses me. Um, so there, there are a number of ways to attack this. Uh, at least on drugs, the issue can be attacked uh, with fiscal arguments as well as the basic moral arguments, for sure. Yeah, I, I don't think you can address the, these issues separately because I think they're very much tied uh, tied together. And it, it strikes me a lot. You hear a lot of conservatives talk about, well, we need to do more for family formation. Uh, but it's not like, I mean, George Bush had this proposal where you're going to go out and advertise in, uh, in low-income areas with billboards that said, marriage is good. <laughs> uh, well, the fact is that most women, including most poor women, want to get married. The problem was that they couldn't find men to marry because the men are unemployed or in jail. I mean, so you're going to have to deal with all these economic issues and the criminalization issues at the same time you try to deal with family formation. It's not enough to simply lecture poor people on how they should go out and get married uh, if, you, if you have these other problems. Uh, one more if we have one. I believe Mr. Lynch mentioned in his remarks the issue of dealing with the bad apples in the police force and the red tape involved. Are there any suggestions on how we can create policies or legislation to address that? Um, there are good policies uh, uh, contained in the task force report that was issued a couple of days ago. There are some good recommendations in there, but um, the, the problem is, is that the it's the really the political incentives of elected officials. Um, 
I thought it was a mistake for the Department of Justice to launch its investigation of the Baltimore Police Department because I didn't think the time could be any better to clean up that department than right now. Uh, the, the mayor said she was interested in reform. Her, her police chief said he was interested in turning the department around. Uh, they do get pushback from like uh, police unions and that sort of thing. So I think with the outcry and the protests going on in Baltimore, there's never been a better time to clean up that department and get the right reforms in place than right now. The immediate effect of a Department of Justice investigation is to kick the can down the road for whoever, you know, six months, seven months, a, a year from now. And then they will issue their report with good criticisms and probably some good recommendations, but then the political climate will have changed, everyone will have moved on, and they'll make some, probably some small changes without having a, a big political fight. And uh, that is the pattern that we see over and over again. So sometimes uh, these uh, fe federal intervention uh, can have an enabling effect uh, for the local officials who do not really want to make hard decisions at the local level. Uh, see, sometimes they want to invite the feds in so that the feds can make tough decisions. But you know, this is why we elect a mayor and a police chief. It's their primary responsibility and now it was the time for them to do it. And uh, they've uh, avoided and evaded responsibility, I think, by asking the feds to come in and give them recommendations about what to do. I would, um, I would just add that uh, I think with, uh, as I said in my presentation, I think if there's bad body camera policies in place, it might become harder to fire bad apples. Because if, if police officers are involved in a lethal use of force incident and then they get back to the station, and they're allowed to view that footage with a union representative or a, another colleague, or and they're allowed to view the footage and come up with their own report about what happened. That's going to allow, um, you know, to, for them to exculpate themselves. I mean, I think initial reports have to be about what do you think you saw, how did you feel, uh, up to in, including the incident. Uh, now, and and. On the other side, though, what I will say is the, the footage that is coming out, whether it's filmed by citizens or body camera, is making this debate, I think, a lot more fierce. Like, you know, the, the shooting of um, in, in North Charleston, I think everyone saw, saw that footage and just thought, how could this possibly be justified? How could, uh, and it's going to become increasingly difficult for bad apples to be defended if they're caught on camera, but not if police are the only ones viewing the footage. And with that, I want to thank everybody so much for staying and uh, for being part of this audience. So thank you, everybody. Thank you.